You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, November 29th, 2021. Well, you take that word manage and you divide it in its two syllables, you've got man-age. That is what we are doing, is we're looking at the forest and putting it through the perspective of the life expectancy of a human being. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky-Schneider speaks with concerned resident Andy Mahler about the proposed Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. More in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, Indiana lawmakers canceled a one-day session to hear a bill that would make it harder for private businesses to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine at workplaces throughout the state. But first, your daily headlines. Indiana lawmakers canceled a one-day session to hear a bill that would make it harder for private businesses to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine at workplaces throughout the state. After backlash from critics, Governor Eric Holcomb announced he will extend the state's public health order by another 30 days. This marked a walk back from last week when the governor said he wanted to end the health order responsibly by passing three statutory measures. Those measures included continuing enhanced federal matching funds for Medicaid expenditures, receiving federal food assistance, and the ability to vaccinate 5- to 11-year-olds. Holcomb said even though the state will move forward without those changes, he will continue to work with House Speaker Todd Houston and Senate President Pro Tempore Roderick Bray to end the public health order in the future. In a statement, House Speaker Todd Houston said, quote, Over the next month, we'll continue to listen and talk with stakeholders about our policy proposals and we'll file legislation in the near future. Hoosiers can rest assured that we'll hit the ground running come January 4th. End of quote. Meanwhile, Indiana Democrats criticized GOP lawmakers, saying that the special session was a partisan attack on COVID-19 vaccines. Lauren Ganapini, Executive Director for the Indiana Democratic Party said in a statement, quote, Indiana Republicans embarrassed themselves and the state government when they tried to cancel out the necessary tools needed for businesses and Hoosiers to fight COVID-19. Republicans are quickly proving that they are the party that's bad for business, and it's because they would rather put their extreme partisanship ahead of creating a better future for Hoosiers. End of quote. In proposed legislation for the special session, lawmakers would require businesses to allow exemptions for pregnancy, anticipated pregnancy, and for religious reasons. The preliminary draft of the bill also stated that employees can submit to weekly testing if they do not want to get the vaccine. Furthermore, the bill said that an employer cannot deny an employee's request for exemption. Although the state's public health order has been extended, The issue is certainly not over, as lawmakers will convene for the 2022 legislative session in January of next year. Over 3,000 Afghan refugees have resettled throughout the United States after being temporarily housed at Camp Atterbury. Camp Atterbury is located in Johnson County, Indiana, 
and it serves as a training base for the Indiana National Guard. Nearly three months ago, the base was selected as a location to temporarily house evacuees fleeing Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover. During a press conference last week, Colonel Mike Grundman, who serves as the base's installation commander, said the effort has given evacuees hope for the future. Indiana, its communities, its individuals, its organizations, and the state government has been absolutely terrific uh, to maintaining a, a even flow of, of donated gifts, goods, services, uh, volunteers, linguists, dentists, uh, phrase books for American soldiers. It has been a truly incredible outpouring from, from communities and organizations alike, and I cannot stress that enough. Since September... Camp Atterbury has brought in over 7,000 refugees, less than 10% of the 82,000 people who have relocated to the United States as part of the Operation Allies Welcome Initiative. As of now, roughly 250 people have permanently resettled in Indiana. State officials say the goal is to resettle over 700 people throughout cities in Indiana, such as Bloomington, South Bend, Fort Wayne, and Indianapolis, among others. Operation Allies Welcome works with various resettlement agencies to permanently house those fleeing Afghanistan. Exodus Refugee Immigration stands among those agencies to assist with the effort. Executive Director Cole Varga discussed the long-term process of resettlement. Some of our guests here um, at Atterbury speak quite a bit of English and, and may be very successful and have uh, college degrees and other work histories, and some may not, and that's okay, and that's why we'll stick around and, and help them with what they need, whether that's ongoing employment support, whether that's helping single parents uh, figure out childcare, uh, whether that's uh, mental health needs. We have free mental health services we offer through our office, for example. We have women's and youth program services that we offer for just specific needs that uh, that women may need or that youth may need coming into a new city, maybe not speaking English and being thrown into school. They might need a few extra supports. So we try to set them up with mentors or, or volunteers to help them adjust to, to their new life in the U.S. Nahid Sharafi says she came to Camp Atterbury in early September and her journey has been, quote, long and scary, unquote. Sharafi fought back tears as she explained that she was separated from several family members during the evacuation. However, she says she's excited for her new life in the United States. I'm very excited that I start my new life in the Indiana and where I hope that to continue my study in Bloomington University. I have a message to the people of the United States, and I want to say that People of the United States has a heart of the gold. Thank you so much for everything. I'm sure that in different and in difficult condition, they never leave Afghan people alone. I'm sure that since I came to the Adderbury camp, I learned many things from them, especially from the army, especially from the Department of State. You know that they behave very patiently and justly with Afghan people. And we learn many things of them. Thank you so much for everything. And I hope that I can make the world around me a better place for others like them. Thank you so much. Indiana residents can still donate items for Afghan refugees at eight locations throughout the state. For more information, you can visit Team Rubicon 
org slash resettlement. In today's feature report, WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky-Schneider speaks with forest activist and concerned resident Andy Mahler about the proposed Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. Mahler listed to WFHB's interview with U.S. Forest Service staff members Chris Thornton and Marion Mason. He said that he has researched this subject for about 35 years and called many of their answers into question. We turn to Herhusky-Schneider for more. But I've been involved in public conversations about the management of the Hoosier National Forest since 1985 and been concerned even before that. But that was the first time I went to a public meeting and that public meeting changed my life. And I thought I was done with that for now that I'm in my 70s, but apparently the Forest Service had another idea. And so now I'm back into it. And so how do you feel about the 2006 management plan? The standards are supposed to change every 15 years. It's a legal legal requirement under the National Forest Management Act, which was passed in 1976, that every national forest in the country have a management plan and that those management plans, excuse me, be updated periodically, but no less than every 15 years. In fact, that the management plan that they are really basing this project on was written in 1985. That plan then was modified substantially in 1991 in response to overwhelming public opposition to the heavy emphasis in the 1985 plan on timber cutting, road building, and other forms of extraction. The 1991 plan, unfortunately, was modified again in 2006 with much less public involvement because the public had been lulled into a false sense of security that they had had a significant role in getting a higher degree of protection for the Hoosier National Forest. In fact, most of the changes that I've been able to determine that happened in 2006 actually made the 1991 plan more like the 1985 plan. And what they are doing now, of course, is trying to cut an enormous volume of timber off this mm-hmm. 10,000 acre area that includes uh, a substantial portion of the Hoosier National Forest in southern Orange County, is that they're trying to cut this large volume of timber. But unlike the 1985 plan, they no longer call timber sales timber sales. Now they call them restoration. And there's mm-hmm. a very good reason that they now refer to timber sales as restoration, and that is that their own guidance and regulations requires that if they cut timber for uh, commercial purposes, that some of the money from those timber sales be returned to the treasury. If they cut timber for restoration, my understanding is that the Forest Service gets to keep the proceeds from the sales for their own uses and particularly for preparation of additional restoration work. So the more damage they do to the forest, the more restoration is required. So when they log, There's no incentive to minimize damage. In fact, there's an incentive to maximize the damage so that additional funds can be retained from the sales of the timber to mitigate the damage. And it's an endless cycle of abuse and restoration, Mm -hmm. abuse and restoration. That's very interesting. I would have never thought about it like that. 
Well, most people wouldn't see that's the advantage of having been doing this for so long. You start to learn why would they be wanting to do something like this, which is so deeply unpopular with such a wide swath of the public. Mm -hmm. And it's because the Forest Service, irrespective of whether it's a Democratic or Republican Republican administration, they have their own priorities and their own incentives. And with any federal agency, the first priority and the first uh, incentive is to maximize the budget. I think it's interesting that it is underneath the Department of Agriculture. Not an accident. They were originally in the Department of Interior when they were first established as forest preserves. But unfortunately, as always, those with an economic interest in how the forests are managed end up winding up in those congressional committees that dictate the Forest Service's budget and their general guidance. And so I'm not sure when it was, but I believe it was at the end of the 1900s that the Forest Service was transferred to the Department Mm -hmm. of Agriculture, and the mandate was changed from preservation to multiple use. And Mm -hmm. multiple use, of course, came to be translated into road building and cutting timber, especially in the period after World War II, when there was a great demand for forest products for Mm -hmm. a growing economy and the need to build houses for all the people returning from the war. Of course, the world has changed dramatically since then. But one thing that is notably absent from the 2006 forest plan that they are using to guide their management of the Hoosier National Forest is any meaningful mention of climate change and the role of healthy, older, mature forests in mitigating climate change and sequestering carbon. From the interview with the Forest Service, It's hard for me because I think both sides, conservation, preservation, everybody thinks they really are doing the right thing. They really think that we need some bigger trees, older trees gone so that we can have some younger trees to like ensure the younger generation has a chance at like growing up into a healthy forest and like have like the succession of the forest kind of thing. Yes, uh, there's there's no doubt in my mind that uh, many, many good people work for the Forest Service and are working from the best of intentions. But what you have to understand is how these incentives within an agency as large as the Forest Service works. And that is that there are many, many people with a wide variety of points of view. And those whose points of view happen to correspond with those things that generate the additional revenue for the Forest Service are those Mm -hmm. who advance within the agency and those who wind up in positions of responsibility. So the Forest Service self-selects for the people Mm -hmm. within the agency which will do, who will do the things from the best of intentions that will generate the highest degree of revenue for the agency and therefore allow them to expand their budget and land, uh, expand their, their operations. And uh, there's no better example of that than fire. Right now, because of the horrific fires out west, the public and the Congress are very concerned about what we've seen on our televisions of these very, very mm-hmm. dry forests in the western states under extreme drought conditions producing catastrophic wildfires that completely obliterate any control measures that the Forest Service puts in place to try and mitigate or slow the advance of fire. You know, in a, in a wet forest or in a normal rain season out west, some of those controlled burns might have had the desired effect. But what we're finding now is that the Congress and the Forest Service are spending literally billions of dollars 
more than half of the entire Forest Service budget is now dedicated to fire. So basically, anything that the Forest Service says they need to do or want to mm -hmm. have in terms of airplanes, helicopters, and so forth to fight fire, the Congress is saying, do what you got to do. Just don't let us see those horrific images on our televisions anymore. Yeah. Well, that pot of money is sitting in Washington, D.C. with the big word fire on top of it. And you can be sure that these forest managers from the eastern United States, where the forests do not have that same history of fire, where the forests are wet, the, the, where there is abundant annual rainfall, they are looking for ways to tap into that pot of money. And one of the ways they tap into that pot of money is by doing both control burns to minimize fire risk. But one of the main places that there is fire risk that controlled burns are therefore required is in these restoration projects that are cutting down healthy, mature forest and leaving a bunch of, of logging debris on the forest floor. So then after logging, then they have to go in and burn. And it's never enough to just burn once. Most in areas that are proposed to be burned are proposed to be burned at least three times. This project calls for 10,000 acres to be available for logging projects, but 15,000 acres to be available for fire projects. And that tells you, I think, a little bit about where the priorities are. And I honestly believe that the financial incentives for a cash-starved agency in, in general, you know, an agency that has lots of things it's required to do but does not get appropriations from Congress to do most of the things it's required mm -hmm. to do. They're looking for ways to generate income to do the many things they feel they, they need to do on their forests. I mean, I do think that prescribed burns are important, but I definitely think, you know, we are a wetland. Well, one of the things that they propose to do, of course, is to create early successional habitat. But what they ignore is how much early successional habitat there is on adjacent private lands. And just for our listeners, can you explain early successional forest? Yes, thank you. That's a very good question. Early successional habitat means after a clear cut, after a major fire, after a major windstorm, after major major insect infestation, anything that causes a significant area of forest to die. And in all these natural circumstances, everything that dies ends up lying on the forest floor, creating additional habitat and soaking up moisture. But in the Forest Service's version, all the big trees are actually hauled off for commercial purposes and only the smaller residue is left on the ground, which is then burned. But in these openings that are created by the Forest Service through logging or in a natural circumstances through trees being blown down or dying from insects or disease, what comes up after the old forest is gone is called early successional habitat. It's young trees, it's shrubs, it's, it's forbs, grasses, herbaceous layer, it's everything that, that gets a chance to grow when the full sun hits the forest floor. Most people don't realize how very small the Hoosier National Forest is because you look mm -hmm. at the state highway map, for instance, it just shows this huge block of green that goes all the way from Monroe County in the north to the Ohio River in the south. But within that large block of green, uh, two-thirds of the land is actually privately owned. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hoosier National Forest in its totality is only about 204,000 acres. Just by way of comparison, if all that land were consolidated into one contiguous block, it would be smaller than Orange County, which is uh, 261,000 acres. So the entire Hoosier National Forest would fit in Orange County 
<clears throat> excuse me, with 50,000 acres left over if it were all consolidated into one block. There is lots and lots and lots of private land within the boundaries of the Hoosier mm-hmm. National Forest. And a lot of that is in early successional habitat. So the Forest Service could be working for co- looking for cooperative opportunities to help neighboring landowners keep their land in early successional habitat, which might also work to to create permanent fire breaks, and then let the national forest itself be what people expect to see in the national forest, which is big old trees. And not only are they proposing to log big old trees to create so-called early successional habitat, but there's plenty of early successional habitat already on the Hoosier National Forest that could be maintained as early successional habitat rather than cutting down the biggest healthiest, oldest trees in order to create a young forest condition. Why not find some places already in a young forest condition and maintain it in a young forest condition rather than cutting down the best of the forest in order to create yeah. early successional habitat and then burn it and burn it and burn it again in order to, to dry it out so that it will never be a healthy old forest like that again. And with the Hoosier National Forest specifically, so it is a relatively young-ish planted forest, and that is like one of the concerns. Not planted, not planted. There are some areas that are planted. The hardwoods, they've tried planting Mm -hmm. hardwoods, and they find that the the places where they plant the hardwoods do not do any better than the natural regeneration. Mm -hmm. The only place you'll find planted forest in the Hoosier is in the pines, which were planted Mm -hmm. to stop erosion on highly erosive soils stabilize the soil, build the soil, and stop the erosion. And that's exactly what the pines have done. And now Mm -hmm. they want to come in and clear cut the pines and expose that soil to the sun and to the wind and to the rain and restore the erosive conditions that were the reason the pines were planted in the first place. Now we're back to the Hoosier. The Hoosier is a young forest. Virtually every acre of what's now the Hoosier National Forest has been in private land and been reacquired by the federal government to create the National Forest. That's a huge difference from what happens out west, where the land was never in private ownership. It was, it's been in public ownership ever since it was first basically seized from the original indigenous inhabitants through war, or treaty, or purchase. But in the east, all these lands were at one time in private hands, and much of it was in agriculture, subsistence agriculture. And so, what you're looking at is a recovering forest. Now, there are moist coves and other places where it was very difficult to get to for logging or where there, the, you know, or for agriculture. But for the most part, what you're seeing on the Hoosier National Forest is trees that are no more than uh, at most a couple hundred years old. And in most instances, 80, 90, 100, 120, maybe 140 years old, going back to when the land was cleared in the uh, late 1800s and the early 1900s. By 1910, virtually all of the forest in the state of Indiana had been cleared. Originally, uh, 86% of our 23 million acres were forest. Now we're in the range of maybe 20%, and almost all of that 20% is land that has been uh, reforested by natural regeneration. There are some places where the pines are actually doing fairly well, And we don't know what the future holds with a warming planet. So anything that has the prospect of being able to thrive and prosper and be part of a diverse, complex ecosystem should be given the opportunity to grow, thrive, and prosper and to contribute to the system that filters water, holds soil, sequesters carbon, provides numerous benefits to humans, including high-quality municipal water supply and so forth. 
with the areas where the pines are not well adapted, I can take you to dozens of pine stands in the Hoosier National Forest and show you under every single one, the hardwoods are already coming back. The pines, when they're standing dead, provide great uh, roost trees for raptors. They provide great habitat, but then when they fall to the ground, even more habitat. They suck up enormous quantities of water. They're like big sponges. They suck up the water in the wet spring and then release it back into the soil and into the air throughout the drier, warmer summer months. Pines are doing an excellent job of building, holding soil, providing habitat. They provide great shelter for turkeys and deer in the wintertime. Just about guaranteed that every stand of thick pines is being widely used in the winter months as a great place to protect uh, the, for the species to protect themselves from the cold winter winds. So the pines are doing all the many things that we hoped they would do when they were planted. And the idea that we would then come in, destroy the understory of hardwoods with heavy logging equipment, remove all the biomass from the soil and leave a dried out forest that then is at risk of fire in its wake is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. As far as what the public can and should do is these are public lands, let's be clear. Indiana has one of the smallest bases of public land, including public forest, anywhere in the country. Indiana, you may be surprised to know, is the smallest state west of the Appalachian Mountains. It has only about 4% of its forest land in the Hoosier National Forest, and less than well under 1% of its entire land base in the Hoosier National Forest. These public forests are the only places that most people in the public can say, I actually own that forest. These are public forests. These are our forests. We want them protected. So the key there is that there are people in Congress who are responsible for expressing the wishes of the American people and the people of the state of Indiana in the deliberations about how these forests should be managed. So everyone should contact their member of Congress and their two senators, Senator Braun and Young, both of whom have expressed concern about this project. And in, uh, in the sub south central portion of the state, uh, Representative Hollingsworth is the representative who has most of the Hoosier National Forest in his district. So those would be three people that anybody who has anything to say on this subject should contact. They're easy to get a hold of. There's a congressional switchboard in Washington, D.C that will put you in touch with any of these offices. I could give you the numbers, but you could also just put them on the WFHB website for people who want to follow up on this. But please contact your members of Congress, especially the two US senators, Senator Braun and Senator Young, saying that this plan should be withdrawn, that this plan is tied to the 1985 plan, which completely ignores climate science and completely ignores the changing in public attitudes related to the priorities people have for these public forests at this point in human history when we see dramatic change coming to every ecosystem and the public forests are the best places we have for protecting habitat for wildlife. They're the best places for maintaining water quality, for securing healthy soils, for growing diverse hardwood trees. You know, out, out west, some of those forests have only five species of trees. We have over 70 hardwood species of tree on the Hoosier National Forest. Some of the forests out west, they may get eight to 15 inches of rain a year. We get 48 inches of rain a year. It's just a very, very different circumstance 
They have huge areas of public forest. We have almost none. This forest is essentially a suburban forest surrounded by fairly dense human populations who look to these wild public lands as the best opportunity for recreation and all these other public benefits that only these blocks of public forest are able to provide over time. I it's it's tricky because the Forest Service really we had a good interview and you know sometimes these conversations can really be confusing and cuz both perspectives like every, I think both both sides you know there aren't I mean there are many sides there are many sides to this You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noelle Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noelle Herhusky Schneider. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart Ingersoll. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 